We've just uh, come through the Christmas season and people celebrate it in different ways and some people don't celebrate it at all. Uh, we had the pleasure of being with a young woman um, from a different culture and it was the first time she'd had a Christmas tree and the first time we had provided a stocking, we provided a stocking. She said, I've never had that. Our first time, she said, we celebrate Christmas, but in a very, probably less commercial way. What can I say? But Christmas, you know, what I think of it as, you know, wreaths on the door and lights on the house, Christmas trees, the smell of mold cider, family and friends around the table, stockings hung on the fireplace, the sound of Christmas carols in the air, and all these things are traditions, the sights and sounds and smells of Christmas. Uh, and to me, it's always been a glorious thing. I've always enjoyed the season. But there's one more thing without which the Christmas season just would not be complete. Um, the arguments from those who say Christmas is just a repurposed celebration taken from pagan religions. Yes, no Christmas would be complete without that claim or those who wish to undermine the faith of Christian believers. That Christmas is just a pagan holiday appropriated by the early church fathers to entice pagans away from their traditional beliefs is repeated so often that it is accepted as fact, but it is not fact. The first thing to remember about critics of Christianity is that they do not mean to correct Christian beliefs, they mean to undermine Christian, the Christian faith. To do so, they attack the two main Christian celebrations as pagan, and that would be Christmas and Easter. As a Christian, you know that Easter is the celebration of the res resurrection of Jesus. And we in this church actually more often refer to it as Resurrection Sunday um, because we've also bought into the belief that Easter as a term is derived from pagan religions. But it is not. Easter does not come from the pagan fertility god Ishtar. As modern critics say, rather, recent scholarship concludes that Easter comes from the Latin in albus, that the which is the plural of the word dawn, okay, the dawning of the light. But in albus is not where Easter comes from. It comes from that translation that is found in High German, the old High German extarum. Christmas, of course, is from the the 11th century celebration of the Mass of Christ and was not a replacement for the pagan holiday of Sol Invictus or the birth of the god, pagan god Mithras, which all occurred around December 25th. Rather, the date for Christmas of December 25th was determined not by any pagan festival, but by its linkage to Easter, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ancient Jewish thought, and this predates the Christian fathers uh, set, uh, setting a date of De December 25th. Ancient Jewish thought was anchored to the belief that great events, particularly creation and salvation, 
were linked by God-ordained symmetry, that the God of order has linked things together of importance. For instance, Jewish scholars believed the the creation of the world and the birth of Abraham occurred on the same date. It was a symmetry, creation of the world and the creation of God's word. The church fathers, in the same way, believed, rightly or wrongly, that a person died on the day of their conception, meaning the day they were conceived would be the day that they died. Arriving on a date of March 25th for the crucifixion and death of Jesus, because we happen to know that it was on uh, the Passover holiday, it was easy to calculate the conception of Jesus. So they went from March 25th, which they believed was the date of Jesus' crucifixion, nine months earlier was December 25th. It has no linkage to any pagan mythology, but instead to Christian tradition. The fact is, rather than appropriate pagan holidays or destroy pagan beliefs, early Christians arriving in pagan lands tended to ignore or simply let alone pagan ceremonies, such as wedding ceremonies, their feasts, they just left them alone. They preached the word of God and they let the traditions of the people remain. More concerned with the proper worship of God through the proper understanding of who Jesus actually was and thus understanding how salvation was offered by his sacrifice on the cross, the cultural feasts and traditions of the pagan nations were not appropriated or replaced with Christian imitations. Instead, with the coming of the truth of God, the pagan imitations were left to wither away by their own self. Acts 19, which we begin today with a brief foray into the very last two uh, sentences of verses of Acts 18, uh, shows just how the coming of Christianity to the city of Ephesus would affect pagan worship and, by extension, the economy of the city entirely by the work of the Holy Spirit. Last week we were introduced to Apollos, a native of Alexandria who was described as a learned and eloquent man. Uh, He arrived in Ephesus preaching accurately uh, about Jesus Christ, but incompletely. Paul's fellow workers from his time in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and taught him more fully about Christianity. Meanwhile, we saw the Apostle Paul himself had embarked on what we now know as his third missionary journey. The end of chapter 18 reads in verses 26 through 28, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and this is Apollos, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 27a then said, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, specifically the city of Corinth, brothers encouraged him and wrote to his disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, 
he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Now we are not told why Apollos wished to go to Philippi, uh, to Corinth I mean. Perhaps as a man of education he wished to visit Greece, uh, the center of learning and philosophy in Europe. But in the Western text of the Bible, and the Western text is just one of the several text threads we have of the translate of the Greek Bible. The Western text tells us that and certain Corinthians who were residing in Ephesus heard him and requested him to cross over with him to their native land. And when he consented, the Ephesians wrote to the disciples to receive the man. And when he took up residence in Achaia, he was of great help in the churches. With the mobility of the population, and it always surprises me about how mobile the population was. Priscilla and Aquila, as we know, had left Rome because of the uh, persecution the Jews were facing there, because they were causing trouble. That's why they were being... Uh, but they ended up in Corinth, where they met Paul. Now they're in Ephesus. It was a very mobile society, and Apollos who was an Egyptian by birth, is now in Ephesus and leaving for Greece. It's now been more than three years since Paul had left Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. And though they had left good leaders behind, probably nowhere near as gifted at teaching scripture as those three who had left, the Apostle Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. In Apollos... They had found a teacher, the equal of Paul, and one who was searching for ministry opportunities. In Apollos, and as we saw last week, the presence of this powerful intellect that Apollos possessed would occasion the church in Corinth to break into factions. Some would say that they were the party of Paul, their beloved founders. Some would say they were the party of Apollos. Some would say they were the party of Jesus, Christ himself. However, there's no evidence in scripture that Paul saw Apollos as, first of all, competition, or Apollos seeing Paul as a, a competition. At no time does the Apostle Paul hint that Apollos was anything other than a trusted fellow worker. All Apollos cared to do is that which scripture testified that he accomplished. He was a great help in the churches to those who through grace had believed. Chapter 18 ends with verse 28b. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos starts off in Corinth, where he left off in Ephesus, dynamically preaching the truth of Christ. So now we get to, after finishing 18, chapter 19, which starts with the, uh, the Apostle Paul traveling through Asia Minor once again. And it happened, this is verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now this third missionary journey took a different route 
through Asia Minor than Paul's first two trips. By bypassing the major Roman road, he went through the countryside in the north and then came down to Ephesus. Now, if you're anything like me, you've heard about the seven wonders of the ancient world, and I'll bet you can't name them, just like I can't, okay? When Niels was in uh, Iraq, he really wanted to explore Baghdad. He wanted to see the site of the um, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, okay? Of course, there was a war on and he couldn't do that. So, uh, so you've all heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You've probably heard of the Colossus of Rhodes, a statue that the size of our Statue of Liberty that uh, I would say guarded the harbor of Rhodes, but it didn't guard, it welcomed. I don't think it welcomed either. Colossus of Rhodes. But the other five, do you know what the other five were? Um, Great Pyramid of Giza was one. And one of my favorite, favorite stories is 2,000 years before Christ, there were tour agencies set up to bring you to see the pyramids of Giza. They would advertise throughout Europe and have organized tour groups. It's just fascinating. There was the Lighthouse of Alexandria. There was the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, Turkey. The statue of Zeus in Olympia, Greece. These were all great things, but they say the greatest of them all was the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Artemis uh, is also known as the Roman god Diana, goddess of fertility. This is what Paul would have seen as he enters Ephesus on this missionary journey because it was impossible to miss. It was so large, they say it was four to, If you've seen pictures of the ruin of the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Greece, they say it was four times the size of that. It was 400 feet long, 150 feet wide. The columns, 36 of them that, that lined the outside of the temple were four stories tall. My source didn't tell me how tall they whole building was, but, but the, the columns alone were four stories tall. Now, as the commerce of Ephesus declined, tourism and religious pilgrimages provided the bulk of their economy. Uh, silversmiths and other artisans made trinkets associated with the temple and their worship there, uh, which formed the basis of most of the city's economy. Therefore, protection of the cult of Artemis was of utmost concern to all in the city of Ephesus. This is the situation that the Apostle, Apostle Paul found as he traveled into the city uh, that he had promised to return to. Remember, he was asked to stay and teach, but because he was had because he had gotten a haircut, he had to leave the because he had to cut his hair and fulfill his vow of the Nazarite, he could not stay in Ephesus when he was asked. And he promised that if the Lord allowed him to, he would return. The Lord did indeed allow him to, and he is now back. So as Paul entered Ephesus, verse 19, 1b says, there he found some disciples. Now, just as we saw with Apollos in our last study, scholars are not sure if these were disciples 
of John the Baptist or if they were Christians. Verse 2 says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Uh, as with Apollos, these disciples had not received the Holy Spirit. And back then, the apostolic gift of tongues was something that at the beginning of the church, everybody received. These people did not, had not received it. And because of this, by their answer, many commentators believe that they were thus disciples of John the Baptist, not truly Christians at this time. And there were still pockets of John the Baptist's disciples spread about Asia Minor up until the middle of the second century. So news didn't particularly travel fast about Jesus, uh, even though John the Baptist had talked about the Spirit of God that would be that Jesus would baptize people with. So as when they say here that they had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, uh, scholars assume that what they meant was that they did not hear that the Spirit of God had come and that they had not received it themselves. Verses 3 through 4 read, And he said, into what, into what then were you baptized? And they said to him, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is, Jesus. So when Paul learns that they, being disciples of John the Baptist, had not yet received a Christian baptism, Paul gives them a short course in Christianity, which, being disciples of John, they readily accepted and believed. They were preached the word. Verse 5 says, Upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the only example, and I'm mentioning this because I've been asked in the past, but this is the only mention of a rebaptizing of anybody in Scripture. Nowhere else have we seen this as people who had been baptized by John before had we've not seen them be rebaptized in the name of Jesus. In this case, we do. I have been asked about the validity of someone's baptism by a denomination that had poor doctrine. And my thought on that was, and it still remains the same, that the validity of someone's baptism by a denomination is a baptism into the universal universal church of Jesus Christ, not into the denomination itself. So if you, if you are an adult and believe in Jesus and are baptized, no matter who it's by of a Christian denomination, you are a believer and should not be rebaptized when you come to a further doctrinal truth that you believe in. You're already a Christian. And so you should not seek a secondary baptism. That said, believer's baptism based on repentance of sins and belief in Jesus is a true baptism. Infant baptism performed on a non-understanding and thus unrepentant non-Christian calls for not a rebaptism. A second baptism 
but a first believer's baptism. I mean, I was baptized as a baby, okay? And upon adulthood believers, I was baptized as a Christian because of my belief that it is for believers only. This then is what Paul administers to these 12 men. He administers a first Christian baptism. Verse 6 says, And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Uh, As was the case in apostolic times, a post-Pentecost baptism was accompanied with the gift of tongues as proof of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can the gift of tongues be given to Christians today? God can give anybody anything. I don't think it's normative. And if it is given, it will be in a known tongue for furtherance of the gospel. I side with John MacArthur on that one. So, But if God does give the gift of tongues, it will be the supernatural ability to communicate in languages, known languages, that one has not previously learned. And verse 7 concludes our passage for today. There were about 12 men in all, and there's no significance to the number 12, to the 12 tribes of uh, Israel or anything there in line. It's just there were about 12 men who were baptized. This group of men encountered by the Apostle Paul will be used by God to form the core of the church in Ephesus. These 12 that he just encounters, they would be the core, the very center of Christian outreach to the world going forth because Paul, setting up in Ephesus, is now going to go to the rest of the known world and the Ephesian church will be the one that supports most of the Christian outreach from then on. So the coming of Christianity would not only shake Ephesus to its core, and it would. The heading of the next section is the riot in Ephesus, you know. Something's going to happen here, I'm just letting you know. But it will shake Ephesus to its core. And ultimately, the whole world. Now, the novelist Dan Brown, in his book, The Da Vinci Code, and its sequels, paint the early church fathers as devious schemers plotting to bring down pagan societies for their own benefit, appropriating pagan festivals and replacing them with with Christian forgeries. Nothing could be further from the church, uh, from the truth. From a distant history shrouded in the mist of time, all ancient societies celebrated certain things, things that they could observe before technology, before radio, before TV, when people could actually think, when they had time to to observe the skies. They've always known, as far back as we can go, when the summer and winter solstices were. They just, they counted the days. They knew how these things worked. They all Almost all societies had feasts around the summer solstice and the winter solstice. They thus knew the planting time 
and they knew the harvest time. And these things were celebrated. Uh, Jews had the uh, festival of first fruits, we know. One of their major holidays today started off as a uh, harvest feast. All societies had these things. They celebrated springtime planting. They celebrated the harvest. And as we have talked about just a little bit earlier, uh, one of the... Uh, Mithras was said to have been born on December 25th and therefore everybody sits back and says oh well the Christians appropriated that because we don't know truly when Jesus was born but September uh, December 25th was chosen for a different reason than the pagan holiday it was chosen as we know by counting backwards from the day of Jesus death I've heard other people and say that, well, you know, we know that the shepherds were in the fields by night. It was lambing season. And this wasn't lambing season. Lambing season should have been in the spring. My oldest daughter was um, the shepherdess at uh, Mount Sac Junior College for like four years. Don't ask why she was in junior college for four years. I can explain it to you. But, uh, and lambing season in, uh, at Mount Sac, which is in Pomona, Uh, starts in late November and runs through May. We're at the same latitude and the same rough um, temperature climb as Israel is. Also, theirs would run the same amount of time. It's a six-month lambing schedule. Christmas wasn't selected to replace pagan festivals. Now, we have many things, uh, Christian festivals, that divide the year, and I looked these up. <laughs> I mean, I do know Christmas and Easter, you know, but I said, oh, what are the other ones? And, and there were, somebody listed seven. Uh, Advent, and we don't celebrate necessarily these in the Reformed Church, but uh, other churches do. Uh, they celebrate Advent and Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is big in my sister's church, uh, Episcopals. Uh, Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, Lent, and thanksgiving and none of these are in the least bit taken from pagan festivals though thanksgiving you know uh, which is basically a harvest festival you could say is in line with what uh, pagan society celebrated but Lent, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday and Easter of course all celebrate Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, things of which were dictated, as I said, not by pagan festivals, but by the Jewish Passover. Advent and Christmas, obviously, celebrate Jesus' birth, the timing of which is dictated by Jewish priests and early church fathers' belief in God's symmetry in creation, um, including conception and death. In fact, instead of Christianity appropriating pagan holidays, a real case could be made today of neo-paganists, because there's a real neo-paganist movement going on, neo-paganists taking over Christmas and Easter from Christians, okay? Uh, This whole uh, Santa Claus secularism, the rampant commercialization, of the Christmas season and Easter with its Easter bunny, which, you know, that might be the fertility of uh, Ishtar, 
uh, getting in there, of giving candy and uh, a rabbit. More of a case can be made that pagans are taking over Christian religion, uh, Christian religious practices than opposite. But as far as the view of Christianity craftily inserting itself into a happily pagan world, instead, pagan societies presented with the truth of Jesus Christ by selfless apostles and missionaries willing to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ gratefully gave up their lives of heathen lies for the kingdom of God. They gave them up themselves. They were not they were not forced. They were not shamed. They were taught the truth of God's grace with the coming of Jesus Christ. And as that took hold in their lives, paganism withered and died away without Christian influence. So anyway, the, the message of Christmas and Easter is that of Jesus Christ putting away the lies that had been told for millennia and bringing the truth to pagan lands. Let's close in prayer.